Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today, we're talking about Jonathan Spence. In Chinese, he was known as Shi Jingqian, which I thought when I first heard the name, I thought it was the perfect Chinese name for a historian. Shi meaning history, Jing meaning scenery, and Tian meaning to shift or to migrate. Only later did I, did I learn that the name was a reference to Sima Tian, China's answer to Herodotus, China's first historian, the grand historian, as he was known, the author of the, the second century BC historical records, or Shi Ji. And Shi Jingqian had been given the name by another famed Chinese historian, Fang Zhaoying, who was imploring the young Englishman to look up to the great Sima Qian in his pursuit of history as his model and forebear. The Englishman in question was born Jonathan Dermot Spence, in 1936 in Surrey, England. He came to Chinese history late, having initially studied European civilization at Cambridge. When he began graduate school at Yale, he was meant to continue on that path. But sitting in on a Chinese history lecture one day changed his life. He dropped his courses on Europe, on Europe and began learning the Chinese language. At least that was the story he told me. Because Jonathan Spence would go on to change the lives of many other young people who attended his lectures, as that one lecture in the 1950s once changed his. He would go on to become a distinguished and extremely popular professor at Yale University. He would go on to become the most influential Sinologist writing in English of his generation, often described as the most influential since John King Fairbank. And he would go on to be my teacher. Professor Spence died on Christmas Day at his home in Connecticut. Alice, I think you, you heard about that, I believe? I mean, I read his obituary uh, on the New York Times, but I didn't know who he was before that. No? Okay. Mm. So, uh, you're, a, you're a student of Chinese language. and Yeah, which is so... pretty... I mean, I was surprised that I didn't know him like, right. when I studied okay. Chinese. So, his influence didn't quite extend to France. Yes. I don't <laughs> okay. think... No, I mean, I don't think any of my teachers said, like, you have to read Spence. Okay. Um, we read Jacques Pampano. Jacques Pompeneau. Yeah, who was the okay. French sinologist. Okay. And then first year of Chinese studies, usually what we read. Okay. Uh, like yeah, we didn't read him. History of China from Jacques Pompeneau. Yeah. Okay. And um, is he still around? Oh, yeah. He actually died this year, too. He also died this year. Yeah, wow, he also died this year. Like older. 2021. Okay. Mm. The, oh, yeah. This year. This, because this, we're, this yeah. year that just passed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, all the all the uh, all the all the older scholars are are passing, mm. um, and um, 
but but do do did people remember him quite the way I'm sort of. I, I don't. I don't think so. So, what I read, what, what, what we remember about Jack Pompano is that he was not a fan of Maoist era, and okay. apparently it was something uncommon for French scholars. Uh, you guys are much more into Marxism and left wing. Yeah, that's possible. Like he had no fascination for the Mao, um, for the Mao regime. Uh, hmm. uh, so he was on the. So he was on the right side. <laughs> no, okay. yeah. no, no, no. He was close to the anarchist. Um, he was an anarchist. He was close from the anarchist movement. I didn't say okay. he was an anarchist, okay. but yeah, he okay. was close to this. Okay. Okay. And yeah, no. Uh, it, it was like from what I remember. Um, maybe I was too young to read it, but I remember it was quite boring. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we're gonna get to that because uh, Spence was the opposite. The whole one of one of uh, Spence's accomplishments was that he was a very engaging writer. His books were like novels, except they're actual history, and so people people read them even if they're not, mm-hmm. you know, specialists, even if they're not historians. Mm-hmm. But we're gonna get to that uh, in a minute. Let me just, um, um, I mean, we're we're recording this in in, in essence um, in. In memory of my teacher, and um, I mean, to be honest, I mean, since since the news broke uh, last week of his death, um, many of his former students have written or or talked about their memories of him and his importance to them. And I am uh, very clearly neither among the most distinguished of Professor Spence's students, nor the ones who knew him best. <laughs> um, because after all, I only studied with him, studied with him as an undergraduate, uh, particularly in a seminar on the Qing Dynasty. But I never went in for a PhD, in part on his advice. We're going to talk about that later. Um, nonetheless, some thoughts from me on Spence and his work, for what they're worth. So. Um, as I was saying, one of Spence's great achievements was to popularize Chinese history, to make to make it a much more accessible to Westerners, to whom China otherwise seemed terribly alien. Right? I mean, it still does to 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 many Westerners, but Spence helped to sort of lift the veil um, a great deal. Um, first, there was the enormously popular survey lecture course on modern China that he taught at Yale for decades, which was geared toward American college students who otherwise had no background in Chinese language or history or culture. Um, and given that, this was Yale, and many of these students over the years would go on to occupy positions of influence in American society, it's fair to say that Professor Spence helped to inform a large segment of America's ruling class. Because of him, they knew something about China instead of nothing. Right. Which is what they would have <laughs> known had there not been someone like Spence to teach mm. them and to impress upon them. You know, there's a lot of interesting things here that you should know about. Mm. Um, and then from his from these lectures, which, like I said, were very popular. So every year there would be 300, 400 students in his class every year. 
But um, from these lectures, he he put together his most widely read book, which was indeed a New York Times bestseller.、Mm. Uh, so like a whole lot of. Not even students, not even university students,、yeah. just average people. I couldn't bought his books. Imagine in France, a psychologist like、right. doing a bestseller. <laughs> right, you <laughs> not Pompano, yeah, no. not Pompano, not Pompano. <laughs> and to be, I mean, to be honest, even among certainly even among American or、mm. British、um, psychologists, this was very very unusual,、mm. right?、Um, so the book, his most popular book, was the Search for Modern China, which came out in 1990, or as he always referred to it. The search. <laughs> <laughs> he was English, right? So he did an accent. The search,、um, and in the search, Spence postulates what may as well be my own motto:、mm. one cannot understand the present nor the future without understanding the past. This is true with a single person. You cannot really know someone if you don't know where they come from, how they grew up, what their backstory is. And so it is equally true with a nation or a civilization. You have to know its history. In the case of China, Spence wrote in the search, and I quote: "There is no easy way to understand China any more than there is an easy way to understand any culture, or even to understand ourselves. But the attempt is, is worth making. For China's story is an astonishing one, and has much to teach us." It is the contention of this book that, in trying to understand China today, we need to know about China in the past. But how far back we carry that search remains, in a sense, the central question. China's history is enormously long. Indeed, no other society has maintained its vitality or kept so meticulous a record of its own doings over such a long span. Close to four thousand years, as has China. One can plunge into that record at any point and find events, personalities, moods that appear to echo the present in haunting ways. So Spence went on to pick、uh, the year sixteen hundred as the starting point of his own book, making an argument that at the time was was startling, because. Uh, traditionally, scholars had had、uh, seen the first Opium War, which, as you know, began in 1839, as the event that thrust China into、mm. the modern age. Spence argued, however, that by about 1600, many of the forces and issues and concerns that would come to shape modern Chinese history were already forming, were already in place.、Uh, for example. By 1600, and I love this example, in an early form of globalization, South American mines operated by the colonizing Spanish had significant, significantly increased the global supply of silver. For example, Argentina is、mm. called Argentina. Oh, because of Argento, silver. Silver, Latin for silver.、Oh. Right, and much of that silver. Had reached the Chinese market,、oh. and China traditionally ran on a silver-denominated economy. And the economics, econ- economic problems brought about by a large-scale change to its money supply, which the government couldn't control, 
contributed to the fall of the Ming Dynasty in 1644. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. For me personally, there's another passage from early in The Search that has stuck with me. Circa 1600, Spence pointed out, if you took the cultural achievements of China and arrayed them against the sum total cultural output of Europe, then pound for pound, the two civilizations were about equally matched. Or, in Spence's own words, if one points to the figures of exceptional brilliance or insight in late 16th century European society, one will easily find their near equivalence in genius and imagination working away in China at just the same time. There was no Chinese dramatist with quite the range of Shakespeare, but in the 1590s, Tang Xianzu was writing plays of thwarted youthful love, of family drama and social dissonance that were every bit as rich and complex as A Midsummer Night's Dream or Romeo and Juliet. And if there was no precise equal to Miguel de Cervantes, whose Don Quixote was to become a central work of Western culture, it was in the 1590s that China's most beloved novel of religious quest and picaresque adventure, The Journey to the West, was published. This novel's central hero, a mischievous monkey with human traits, who accompanies the monk hero on his action-filled travels to India in search of Buddhist scriptures, has remained a central part of Chinese folk culture to this day. Without pushing further for near parallels, within this same period in China, essayists, philosophers, nature poets, landscape painters, religious theorists, historians, and medical scholars all produced a profusion of significant works, many of which are now regarded as classics of the civilization. So anyway, um, so outside of this grand survey, the search, Spence wrote an, uh, uh, about a number of titanic personalities, the great figures of Chinese history. In Emperor of China, self-portrait of Kangxi, he led the great Kangxi emperor, who ruled China for six decades in the 17th and 18th centuries, speak for himself by gleaming small bits of personal utterances from Kangxi's state papers. In God's Chinese Son, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom of Hong Xiuquan, he wrote about the 19th century man who believed that he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ and launched the third bloodiest war in human history. Incidentally, of course, we have done podcast episodes mm. on both Kangxi and Hong Xiuquan. Yeah. <laughs> um, in one of my favorite books of his, The Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci, Spence wrote about the Jesuit missionary, uh, who may be largely forgotten in the West, but who remains a household name among the Chinese. But Spence also specialized in writing narrative history centered on minor personalities, uh, which somehow illuminated larger themes. So in Treason by the Book, Spence zeroed in on a fellow named Zheng Jing, who in the 1720s 
tried to persuade a military governor to rebel against the Qing Dynasty. After the authorities apprehended Zheng, Emperor Yongzheng, that would be Kangxi's son, uh, Emperor Yongzheng, instead of executing him, published an account of how Zheng had a come-to-Jesus moment and decided to remain loyal to Yongzheng. Yongzheng ordered the account be circulated throughout the empire. And then he ordered Zheng to travel throughout the country to give lectures advertising it, to, to propagandize his own surrender, essentially. As soon as Yongzheng died, however, his son and successor, the Qianlong Emperor, reversed his father's policy and banned the very book that his own father had published. The, the uh, Qianlong came to, to feel that the detailed account of a case of a man calling for revolution mm. might perhaps perhaps was having uh, the opposite effect of what it was intended. That too many people were talking about it. Um, so the life of an otherwise fairly unremarkable man, Zheng Qing, came to serve to illuminate how an autocracy, a Chinese autocrat, might try to compel a dissident into towing the official line. And the potential pitfalls in doing that, which I think is a very relevant subject today. In uh, another book, Cao Ying and the Kangxi Emperor, Bang's servant and master, Spence wrote of his subject, no great claims need to be made with regard to Cao Ying's personal importance. He was not one of the great officials of the Qing Dynasty, nor even a major figure in the Kangxi reign. Although you may be interested to know that this, this Cao Ying figure was his grandson, would turn out to be Cao Xueqing, the author of The Dream of the Red Chamber, China's greatest work of prose fiction. In Yet another book, uh, late in his career, Return to Dragon Mountain, Spence focused on Zhang Dai, a late Ming dynasty Mandarin who found himself displaced and impoverished after the establishment of the Qing dynasty. Uh, Zhang dedicated the second half of his life to writing a history of the Ming that would explain its fall. But that history, which he completed sometime in the 1670s, was only published in the 1990s. Can you imagine that? Mm. <laughs> You've had a yeah, book that... and then it gets published 320 years later. Um, and Zhang Dai, you know, frankly, I mean, he remains a far from a household name. I, mean, I really didn't know anything about him until until... I heard that Spencer wrote about him. Um, you know, um, actually, in Spencer's own words, one cannot say that John Dai was an ordinary man, but he was surely closer to ordinariness than he was to celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, a, a sort of um, 
definitely a secondary figure. He's not a he's not a Kangxi. He's not a you know he's not an emperor. He's not a sort of great hero. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> this last book about Zhang Dai, Return to Dragon Mountain, it makes me it makes me wistful to be honest. Um, it, it it makes me ponder the I suppose I suppose entirely philosophical and in, in, in the end unanswerable question of what each of us ought to do with our time on earth. Because you have this guy Zhang Dai, Zhang Dai, who chose to spend the second half of his life writing a history that as far as he knew no one would ever read, that <laughs> in fact would not be published for over 300 years. That um, the fact that an Englishman working in America 300 years later would write a book about him would clearly not have been even imaginable to John Dye, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, for one thing, he had no concept of England or America, <laughs> which didn't exist at the time, obviously. Um, the United States didn't exist at the time. Um... <clears throat> So was Zhang Dai spending his time wisely? Oh. I and and I mean Spence for his part, he spent six years in the twilight of his life researching this man, the otherwise largely obscure and forgotten Zhang Dai. Was that time well spent? <laughs> so <clears throat> I can't stop wondering about it because years ago this is what I touched on at the start. Years ago, when I was a student, I asked him, Professor Spence, for advice on whether or not to try to follow in his footsteps and enter a PhD program mm -hmm. to study Chinese history and become a history professor like he was. Yeah. To my surprise, he discouraged me. He told me, don't do it. Why? Well, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> maybe uh, that was more of a reflection on my caliber as a student. <laughs> maybe he just uh, didn't think I'd make a very good scholar. And mm. he might be right about that, if he's about that. Um, but also, during that conversation, he told me, and this, he told me, that had he, had he, had he been able to live his life all over again, he might not have become a historian. He might have chosen to be a newspaper editor, a journalist, like you are. Maybe I made the right choice. I, I, who knows? Who's to say? Um, so, of course, that was shocking to me because, mm. I mean, he was a man who was the most successful person in his field, right? Mm. Who was like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have done it. Um, and I remember now, in the wake of his passing, because I mean, of course, we rightly memorialize him as a giant in his field. He was. He absolutely was. And yet, in this, at least in this one conversation with me, he seemed to doubt that he'd, he'd, uh, he'd made the right choice. Right? So, what are we all to do with our lives? Sorry, this is meant to be a history podcast, not a philosophy one. <laughs> but, well, you know, we talk about philosophy sometimes. White horse is not a horse talk about that um, and how can we know you know how can we know 
if we are doing the right thing with our time. And for the most part, for the most part, I just I just don't think we can. You know, mm. just, I don't think it's a knowable question. It, it, it's not a knowable answer. You know. Um, nevertheless, in memory of my teacher, let me say, Professor Spence, <laughs> I have no way of knowing how you ultimately felt about your choices in life. But I think I can safely say that your many students, myself included, are grateful that you chose to become the teacher and scholar that you were. We are better for it. So, thank you and rest in peace. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.